Foreign ministers and presidents may come and go, but the certainty of exemplary entertainment on the Midweek Drive and the Midweek Drive Morning Edition remains.
thought that we'd be launching a uh, Midweek Drive morning edition with Richard, Fitz- Richard Fitzwilliams and Tasha Wanton and Kathy Manso with a touch of Barbara Streisand. Why? Because What's Up, Doc? What a fabulous movie that was, uh, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, of course. Good friend of uh, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and indeed Sybil Shepherd, but no more. He's popped his clogs, hasn't he, Richard? Uh, he has indeed, and I remember him. I didn't see What's Up, Doc, uh, but I remember him particularly from Paper Moon, uh, which I absolutely loved about Depression-era con artists with Tatum O'Neill uh, in 1973, and then two years previously, and his best-known movie, which uh, won Oscars, uh, was The Last Picture Show in uh, with Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepherd, And it was those movies that I especially liked. Uh, he, had a, I mean, he had an extraordinary career, there's no question about it, both in his, uh, shall we say, colourful and also often tragic private life, and also um, he returned uh, to um, the fans. I, I, I I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I haven't time. It so happens. I know that I probably got Sopranos fans listening to me now, but uh, he was a psychiatrist there. So, I mean, undoubtedly uh, an extraordinary career um, with ups and downs, no question about it. And a good friend of uh, Orson Welles, I believe. Or he certainly had a lot to say about Orson uh, back in the day. Uh, Let's do a quick survey then. Kathy Manso, Peter Bogdanovich, one of the first new wave Hollywood directors. Did he float the boat in Miami? Very special person. 
special person A feeling deep in your soul In your soul Says you were half Now you're whole No more Hunger and thirst First be a person who needs people People who need people Occasionally, we we kept a, we have a lot of our older theaters where you can actually catch a lot of that. So yeah, a lot of people will have uh, heard of it, but it depends on the crowd you're talking to. So I think it's just oh, depends exactly, on that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Natasha, what about your own experience within uh, the cinematic world? Peter Bogdanovich is it just a name of well, it, it sounds interesting. Is he Russian? Um, not a name personally that I'm very familiar with, but I'm sure. And certainly if I'm asking around the community, as Kathy said, there will be people who are familiar with him. We do have a lot of cinemas that do screen a lot of, um, cater to a lot of um, different audiences. And I'm sure his films would be popular and among those. Exactly. Well, let's move on to another nonagenarian, 94-year-old uh, Sidney Poitier, KBE, of course, Knight of the British Empire, uh, all sorts of other areas with respect to this, and often regarded as being uh, one of the last surviving uh, kind of senior Hollywood uh, royalty after Kirk Douglas went in 2020. Would you say that's a fair point, Richard? Oh, indeed. I mean, no question at all that uh, he was extremely significant for two reasons. Um, one, he was an excellent actor, but obviously uh, he was the first um, African-American actor to win an Oscar. And it was he, he was the pioneer in so many ways because reading about his extraordinary life and also the segregation 
discrimination uh, faced by black actors uh, in those past eras. I mean, there's no question that that the fact that he was able to break through in the 1950s broadly, um, this this leading to an Oscar and leading also to some remarkable performances. I mean, this was very very significant for Hollywood, and that was why. I mean, there was it, it really. It's so important to stress how significant that that win was. Uh, I mean, the fact Lilies of the Field was actually a pleasant movie, but not especially distinguished, uh, was one thing. But the one he should have, the film he should have um, uh, won an, an Oscar for uh, was In the Heat of the Night, uh, with uh, when he played a, a detective from Philadelphia and comes to the deep south in, uh, and to investigate uh, crime and he's up against Rod Steiger's bigoted sheriff. And the, the chemistry between them was absolutely superb. So really that was, that was a very, very significant movie and it also showed him at his best. Um, he was in Cry the Beloved Country. He was also, I didn't see this, in The, uh, the Defiant Ones, the end of the 1950s with Tony Curtis. Uh, uh, the two prisoners are shackled together. Curtis plays a racist character and this was a film that was um, before the 60s and before his major breakthrough and nonetheless a very significant film. And I mean, no question the honors that um, he was heaped upon him, presidential, um, BAFTA, Oscar, life achievement, and also the knighthood. I didn't see him play uh, Mandela, which I'd like to have done in the Mandela and de Klerk series on television. Um, and also, this muscular mention, it, see, it's very, very, it is very dated now. Guess who's coming to dinner where he plays a doctor of uh, very considerable importance who's um, going to marry a white girl and her parents, uh, Spencer Tracy, Captain Hep Catherine Hepburn, a rather preachy movie now, but it was an important movie in the 1960s. Uh, he, he wasn't a radical and he turned to directing and he did a lot in the theatre, but also was involved in a whole series of films at one time and another. So it really is a remarkable career. Uh, Kirk Douglas, yes, Burt Lancaster, Charlton Heston. Uh, it's, that, it's that level, really. So at 94, I mean, a truly remarkable innings for uh, someone who was always dignified and extremely talented. But of course, as I say, as a pioneer, very, very significant. Okay, um, Kathy, again, Sydney Poitier, somebody who you were aware of, or is it a case of, well, we know the name, but they've kind of faded, as all things does, in a kind of evanescence of the media? I mean, kind of exactly like that, as you said. I, I know the name, I've seen a film, and, you know, I can definitely have an appreciation for it, but nothing that I know too well enough to, uh, <laughs> to kind of go back and forth about. Uh, and uh, Natasha, similar story for yourself, I presume? Yeah, although I'm very pleased that I, I'm following you, Richard, on Facebook, because I feel like I'm learning things with your post. I saw your sort of eulogy you did to him, and I wasn't aware. I suppose I'm, it must have happened at some time, you know, an, you know, African-American winning an Oscar, but it wasn't something that I, I, I couldn't have been able to tell you who did and, and when it happened. So, yeah, 1964, it was, it, 1964. 
which is incredible when you think about where that sits in the civil rights movement and what was going on at the time. So, yeah. Freakly and manipulative, according to the New York Times. Uh, On all fronts, you wish that dear Evan Hansen had nothing to do with Evan Hansen. Uh, Richard, why have you decided to go for the stage play of this uh, in terms of do you like treacly and manipulative or is it just a case of, well, that's Tony Blair. That's how he's actually got a knighthood, because basically if it was left up to the Duke of Edinburgh, he wouldn't have received anything. Well, at the No Carl Theatre, and I, I found it a very interesting play. Uh, it, it's, it's a high, Evan Hansen is a high school student who suffers from chronic instability. Uh, he does seem to be someone with special needs. So it's never explained precisely what. And he's very much cast adrift in the age of social media. When a letter he writes to himself from the advice of his psychiatrist is found on the body of a schoolmate who commits suicide, uh, he keeps up the morale of this uh, a student's parents uh, by inventing a best friendship and gets close to uh, his sister. So this does involve a tremendous amount of manipulation and pretense. Uh, there's no doubt at all that uh, it's a satire on our age as the school starts um, mourning collectively. But the point is the whole thing is a lie, but equally he needs the lie to build up his morale, which happens to link with the need of the parents to know that their son had a very, very special friend. And also he's invented a relationship which never existed. There's an Evan Hansen fan club at the school and so forth. And this is, it's quite a provocative musical. I have to say, I enjoyed it. Obviously it sends us a message regarding uh, the way we respond to tragedy, of the way social media is so desperately superficial and manipulative, uh, and also, of course, his relationship with his mother, which is absolutely pivotal to um, this, uh, this is because he needs what he invents. So do the people who he invents it for. But, of course, it is lies, and the uh, this play has received... It's got its admirers and it's got those who believe that uh, it's exploitative in itself. I mean, Sam Tutty, a superlative performance, he won an Olivier Award for this. Uh, and I, I was very impressed, I have to say, with the cast. Uh, as far as the message is concerned and as far as what ultimately happens, no spoilers from me, but nonetheless, it's also about isolation it's about loneliness and it's about what you can create to fill voids uh, and the fact that we are all human and have very very different needs it's undoubtedly timely i'll shall we say that i mean yes it had mixed reviews uh, most reviews have been favorable on uh, the movie version, the average rating was 4.8 out of 10. That doesn't strike me as being an absolutely wonderful movie from that point of view, but maybe that's I, it's not the film, Alec, Alec, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about the film. It didn't get good reviews, no. Uh, Natasha, dear Evan Hansen, is it dear God, no? <laughs> um, I would actually be really interested to see both the film and the play and sort of compare them side by side and see kind of not it's it's the staging of the film that has not done it justice or whether it is just the content itself that has put people off um I haven't seen the play um myself 
Um, I am aware of the songs from it. I've seen, I've watched all you know, like the chat shows and stuff where they've had guests on and they've done the music. And the music seems very lovely, which is, you know, in a musical, it's, it's you know, you're halfway there. But um, yeah, there are elements of the plot that does bo- that do bother me with this one. Um, obviously, the whole manipulation around tragedy and also, um, you know, the sort of use of mental health and and etc which is obviously meant to be provocative but it would be interesting to see i would like to see it before i commented further i think mm. on the map i mean i would just mention that regarding music pasek and paul who did la la land um uh, do the lyrics and the book by stephen levinson i i would give it a plus there Kathy, what about your good self? I mean, this is the sort of thing which basically in your role as one of the student advisors, et cetera, and counsellors you might be faced with on a regular basis. Is it too close to home? Yeah, I was just thinking that, a little close to home. <laughs> but I I mean, I kind of agree with uh, Natasha. I haven't seen the movie, uh, only seen bits and parts of here. And I've heard a lot of the music, actually. Love the music. That, that was something that actually pulled me into it to begin with. But uh it is i think it's a bit brutal for me you know it's a little bit too honest in the sense of uh what's going on especially when it comes to mental health and things like that yeah i get a sense that uh it's uh not necessarily going to actually uh fly through the whole sort of sequence uh maybe it'll have its own tragedy in the same way as the scottish play will actually have its own tragedy is it a tragedy or is it just a case of well like shakespeare's original title for the tragedy of the scottish play well, I mean, there, there's absolutely no doubt at all in my mind that um, this version of Macbeth is usually Joel and Ethan Cohen who direct. This is Joel Cohen's, and it's uh, the first um, production that uh, he's directed without his brother. Um, a film I would suggest for those who love Shakespeare that, I mean, it, did abs- it, it fascinated me the opening, you have birds circling what was at least recently a battlefield, and then we see Macbeth and Banquo appear. Um, we have um, Macbeth played by Denzel Washington and Banquo by Bertie Carville. Uh, then we meet the witches. Uh, the witches are played by Catherine Hunter. Now that I will not elaborate on because this is a movie that is, it's full of surprises. It's its the way it's handled. It's black and white, uh, very, very stark interiors. Uh, this is a Scotland which is dominated, indeed entirely con- the forces of darkness control the individuals. Now, the idea is to heighten the the tragedy of the way they behave, particularly Macbeth, of course, because uh, Francis McDormand's Lady Macbeth is indeed uh, dripping with venom and very effective, or so I felt. Denzel Washington's Macbeth, as I say, he, it's not what somebody who's basically a brave soldier would normally be uh, um, a loyal uh, servant of the king, uh, played by Brendan Gleeson, the King Duncan, who comes to stay very faithfully with uh, in Macbeth's castle, and we know, of course, what happens. Here, the witches and what they are transformed into played an absolutely pivotal role because the instruments of darkness, the forces of evil, are in control. As a result, they're responsible for a great deal of what happens and subsequently what happens 
is evocative, powerful. I found that it worked. It won't necessarily work for everybody because Mac, Washington's Macbeth is, as I say, somebody who, it's not the brave soldier who's acting. It's someone who has succumbed to demonic possession because this is a really extraordinary landscape. The, the landscape, in fact, the terrain, the visuals, the fact that it's in black and white, and this plays such an absolutely pivotal part in the way that Shakespeare is, is uh, shown here. And I, I, I'm fascinated. You, there's no escape from these witches. It's not a question just of seeking them out. They could perhaps seek you out. And to ensure that um, evil is so predominant. I, I found it very, very intriguing. The characters here are pawns. What you've got is a take on the Scottish play that I, I've certainly, unlike anything I've seen before, and as I say, the, the lighting, it's, it's, it's a very stark portrayal of the famous story and in which it broadly follows, but with its very, very own special take, which I'm certainly not revealing, especially with reference to the witches. I, uh, for me, it worked very, very well. I was most impressed with it. Um, others have been occasionally a little less enthusiastic because it's certainly very novel, but then that's the essence of Shakespeare. It lives for all time and for all of us. And Macbeth is indeed a tragedy. And I would say that the fact that this film is entitled The Tragedy of Macbeth I mean, this just emphasizes the fact that he has very little control, if any, over what happens. So do you think it would be acceptable then for Peter Capaldi to play, for instance, T'Challa, the Black Panther, uh, in the same way as Denzel Washington is actually playing a Scottish character? Uh, playing whom, I'm sorry? Uh, T'Challa, the Black Panther, played oh, by Black Peter Panther. Capaldi. Well, I mean, if he played, uh, <laughs> if he played, he wouldn't be black. The word Black Panther might not apply. And, and the Scottish nature of obviously uh, Shakespeare and Macbeth featuring Denzel Washington, not political I mean, correctness. I, I think that, no, I mean, we've had colorblind casting for years now. I mean, as far as Black Panther was concerned, that was, uh, it's set in T'Challa, uh, Africa, the um, the territory that they invented for us. Uh, but I, I think the, the casting is interesting. I think that um, the what's fascinating, however, is the take on the play that we see here, unlike anything I've ever seen. Wakanda is the country you're looking for, the fictional Wakanda, country. yes, yes. Natasha, tragedy of Macbeth, one for you? Yeah, this is a really interesting offering we've got, um, I think, this week. I, I do really like Shakespeare. Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen Macbeth live. That's one I haven't gotten around to seeing yet. But um, I, I am very interested in this because Shakespeare is one of those you know, very enduring, you know, wonderful things. And it's been done so many times. And so Richard's sort of description really interests me. And, you know, the only thing I think could see being an issue is whether or not the original sort of message of the play getting lost in this sort of demonic kind of element. So that would be really interesting to see how that interacts with the, you know, the interpretations and maybe the original intentions of the story. But I certainly don't have an issue with Denzel Washington being Macbeth. Um, I think that that would be also, he's, he's an actor with a lot of gravitas and a lot of weight to what anything he does. So I think that that could be something very special. 
And the black and white element, I also thought in the trailer, added an interesting element. Um, sometimes people kind of throw things in in, in Shakespeare because they're like, oh, we've got to be different. But actually, this seemed to add something to the setting. So, yeah, definitely would like to see this one. What did Perfect. you give it out of 10, Richard? Just I'm so sorry? What did you give it out of 10? Oh, I, I, I would go pretty well full to nine or even perhaps 10 out of 10. It is, it is very unusual, but it will grip you merely by the fact, especially that you're fascinated how these characters are thinking. Not we, we know why, because of the power of evil spirits. But what will they do next? And will it necessarily follow the uh, the conventional plot and if so how will the the witches influence what actually finally occurs it, it, it's curious it reminded me occasionally i mean orson wells did uh, verses of shakespeare did othello did macbeth and so on uh, and of course chimes at midnight in black and white and it it's curiously effective uh, i mean it some people might be put off by it but if you're interested in Shakespeare and if you want to see two top-class performers, although McDormand uh, is by far the, the dominant, uh, um, Denzel Washington, I mean, I, his best role, I thought, or at least for me, was American Gangster, um, not Training Day, which as a film I thought overdone. Uh, I, I do think he's superb, and I do think that that was my favourite role that uh, he um, that, that he gave but it isn't um, it isn't a full on performance because there are elements in the film which as I've been describing which which basically have already captured him so he's someone who's in bondage from the start when you see these birds circling over it becomes subsequently clear precisely what is meant by that opening shot Kathy, I mean, g given that obviously Den Denzel Washington has never actually mastered his fantastic role as the Equalizer in the Equalizer 1 and Equalizer 2, uh, as well as possibly uh, the Magnificent Seven and indeed Fences. Uh, I don't know why Richard's forgotten to mention those, but what the hey. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? I haven't forgotten to mention them. I wasn't doing a filmography of uh, Denzel Washington. I thought he was very good indeed in, in Fences, for example. <laughs> um, well... I'm excited to see Denzel Washington, so I'll get that out of the way. But <laughs> I am also, I so I really enjoy uh, Shakespeare. I actually took a lot of courses when I was an undergrad, uh, a lot of William Shakespeare courses, got to see a lot of plays, and I think that helped my appreciation for it. And I think my favorite things about films adapting uh, plays is that they are providing a different version that you wouldn't have imagined. I mean, that's the entertaining aspect of it, because we all know these stories in a sense, like, we, we know, I mean, Macbeth is one of the most famous ones, right? And as well as Hamlet, and uh, I can name 10 more that everyone has had to read either in school or have come across at some point. But I think it's about the opportunity to see a perspective that, um, <clears throat> that a group of people come together to provide. And if it's as, I mean, it's a pretty high standing, nine or 10 already coming from Richard, then I'm already about it, especially if it's gonna come in this kind of dark twisted way. I'm sold. I'm ready to see it.
10 for the tragedy of Macbeth but as far as the next little thing is concerned I suspect Natasha that he hasn't actually gone for the red car in cars uh, or maybe even the 2013 short called red car we have no idea what you're referring to in terms of this next little output all we had down was the red car which again could have opened up a whole range of aspects about vehicles that might have happened to have been red in colour.
can choose a channel when we're watching the TV. Perhaps I. Well, there, I, there's a, there is, of course, a Stephen Willsey short called Red Car, which was based in 2013, in which a hardworking working woman tried to build a better life with the purchase of a used red car, featuring Laura Allen, Tim Bluff, and Kim Bogus. So I suspect well, that is not what you're looking I have, for. I have um, misled you uh, unintentionally. The film was Drive My Car, and it's a Japanese film, and that is the reason I must have. Uh, my apologies, put the wrong title down. Um, it's directed by Rasuke Hamaguchi. It's based on a short story, and it is absolutely enthralling. Uh, we meet Yusuke Kafuku, played by Hidetoshi Nishiyima. <laughs> 
On the other side of the street I knew Stood a girl that looked like you I guess that's deja vu But I thought this can't be true Cause you moved to West LA Or New York or Santa Fe Or wherever to get away from me Specializes in theatrical roles. He's married to the film screenwriter Oto, um, played by Reika Kirishima, and she likes to craft stories during sex. Now, this makes the opening uh, scenes uh, particularly dramatic once you understand what's going on. And indeed, uh, the relationship between them is absolutely fascinating. The daughter previously very tragically died. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, when he returns home on one occasion, unexpected, he sees her having an affair with a young man, Koji, played by Masaki Okada. Uh, so this causes a great deal of soul searching. But when he returns and finds her dead, she's had a brain hemorrhage, and it's a tragedy. 
This is indeed a terrible shock. Work has to continue. He accepts a residency with a theatrical program in Hiroshima, where he'll direct a multilingual adaptation of Uncle Vanya. And he has to be accompanied, this is one of the company rules, by a driver, Bisaki, played by Koji Takasuji. Now, she's very skilled and they seem to get on. He objects at first, but then agrees. In the auditions, who should apply for a role, which in fact he gives him Uncle Vanya, but Koji, the very person who had an affair and knew, of course, his wife and quite a number of things about her that he didn't. And how the relationship between them and also the relationship that develops between him and Misaki, his driver, and her particular, the ghosts in her, so to speak, uh, past, the bo both of them, in fact, it's almost a, a you could say they almost purge emotional problems that they'd had in the past of their family. She has terrible secrets. He is constantly blames himself for the fact that he didn't return in time to save his wife. And what of uh, Koji? What did, uh, with their relationship, the interesting thing is that as he gets to direct Koji, in the preparations for a role. So he start, they start to get to know each other and he's given Koji Uncle Vanya, which is the lead character, but Koji didn't want this. He was applying for another role. What sort of character is Koji? What does he know about um, Yasuke's wife? And to what extent does this affect the relations between them as they gradually near the period where this play is going to be put on. And also what happens when he and Misaki, having developed a closeness, visit where her home used to be. There's a great deal in the story, but the extraordinary way is a perfect cast, a very provocative script, and some most amazing, um, it, it, it's, the visually, it's it's unobtrusive, but what this movie does, it will draw you in because of the way it tells extraordinary story of the way some of the very lives of the various characters overlap, and its meaning becomes clear as to whether or how you come to terms with your past, what sort of future, if any, you can build on it, and also what can happen to you if you're either too ambitious or indeed in the, the, the way a Paul like Lucifer can accompany someone who believes that because they're a star of sorts, they can behave as they like. There are various aspects to this. There's some very interesting stories in a movie that has been very highly praised. So when I say I give it 10 out of 10, uh, I have to admit it is three hours. Now that's going to deter a lot of people, but I was absolutely hooked. There isn't a moment in this movie that appears contrived and you've certainly got unusual characters. For example, uh, I mentioned Oto and the way she only, she tends to create her stories during sex and so forth. When you get 
into the story. And when you get to know the characters or think you know the characters or you get to know more about the characters, I, I think it does tell you more about the human condition. And the scenes in Hiroshima, of course, are also there's a poignancy to some of that, too, which is obviously relevant to us. So an amazing film. Mm, sounds pretentious to me, Richard. Kathy. You're right. Three hours would definitely make me wary. But I mean, you sell it so well, Richard. Every week, I'm always like, I got to go watch this now. Here we go. <laughs> and I'm definitely interested to see how this would uh, fall into it. And especially since it's something that I probably wouldn't have picked on my own. You know, if I just saw it or I saw a trailer, I, I definitely now want to know the kind of mystery that's unfolding behind it. And in about a few hours, that's probably going to be my next thing to watch. <laughs> Natasha, tragically, not the red car we were hoping for from Pixar. Never mind. Oh, this uh, is far better. This is this is definitely wet my whistle way more. Um, yeah, no, I I I love Japanese cinema. I adore Jap. That, that's probably not a surprise to people who know me. I, I absolutely adore Japanese cinema. What I what I think that something very very special to what they create, you know, it, just in TV as well as in, in all forms of their drama, is the complexity and the uniqueness of their characters which sounds very similar to what Richard has been describing in this plot here. So yeah, that's really exciting for me. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's a story as well that I feel you might not necessarily get as much kind of in Western cinema. So I, I yeah, it, it's something a bit different and it's something unique and I'm definitely very intrigued to see this. It did pick up the trinket of best screenplay at last year's Palm uh, Palm Door Cannes Film Festival. So uh, interesting on that basis. Although I have to say it could have been more carbon neutral. Um, I would, is, say, I would say, Alex, uh, Titan, uh, as you know, uh, won at Cannes, and I haven't dared uh, go to it yet, but at some point I, I will have to steal. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm sorry, but the uh, the moral majority will actually clamp down on you for that one, Richard, and say, absolutely no way, Jose. Uh, meanwhile, are you joining the uh, growing number of people who are wishing to get Sir Tony Blair stripped of his knighthood? Well, I did a podcast on Michael Portillo's show opposite Sir Simon Jenkins uh, when we were discussing the honours system. Uh, we all agreed that because, you know, you have to have criteria and you have to have, uh, say, again, the speakers that Andy Hoyle was saying, being prime minister is the toughest job in the world. And frankly, it is for that reason, without going into all the Intricacy. I know perfectly well the reason that a million people object. I would say several million people object. The two most prominent and most divisive prime ministers over the last, in recent decades are obvious: Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher. And the it's reason, like giving a peace Nobel, a Nobel Prize winning peace award. Henry Kissinger. I know you where which you're coming from, Alex. You were about to quote Tom Lehrer, who said that satire died when Henry Kissinger uh, was uh, given the Nobel Prize for Peace for his um, role in, in Vietnam and the negotiations, as well as Lei Dak To, I think, for the, in the Vietnamese side. The, the problem with Blair is obvious. He's, I mean, on the one hand, unquestionably charismatic, uh, one would mention, I think, the uh, Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland. It was begun by John Major, but that indeed should be mentioned. Uh, and also, I think, um, the minimum wage, and Kosovo, Sierra Leone, the interventions, I think, were right. Um, I think you think of Edinburgh didn't like him, Richard? Sorry? 
Duke of Edinburgh didn't like him. He was apparently um, the reason I, according no, to the I, Telegraph. I, I think it's an interesting point about uh, the how the royals got on with him, because if you, I mean, uh, taking the country to war and forced pretenses, as the Chukot report proved, was atrocious. Uh, so far as why he had to wait 14 years, there are those who think, well, he was pretty... He wasn't that flattering about his stay at Balmoral, nor was Sherry Blair uh, in their memoirs, uh, respectively. We know that their son was conceived because she didn't pack any um, equipment uh, because it's all um, laid out by royal servants. And for some reason, she felt abashed why anyone should be... uh... Well, I mean, I have to say that so far as the Queen was concerned... Blair was in London, as everyone remembers, when Diana so tragically died. And the Queen in Balmoral, the royals tend to be influenced for obvious reasons by precedent. And there was the flag wasn't up. The Queen was at that time. And He's not going to be president of Europe, so he might as well have a kind of uh, lower caste on it. Let the hay. Well, I, I'd, say, I'd say, Alex, actually, that uh, listening to Tony Blair, as I have a few times, he's got his institute, uh, but talking about the pandemic, it seems to me that he's been talking quite a lot of sense. That does not exclude excuse the fact there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But on the other hand, and I did bring up this business of a relationship with the Queen, uh, the Queen did rely on him and the people's at that time when Diana died, and the People's Princess is a very, very appropriate sobriquet, which has stuck for Diana. He was somebody who was brilliant with the world. And let's face it, without that particular uh, insertion, you would not have had the joys of the crown becoming one of Netflix's finest series ever. Uh, So, Richard, any thoughts about what you're doing next week? Um, Next week, words, I I will be be sending uh, details, Alex. There we are. Hopefully the right words, as opposed to red car, as opposed to drive my car. The only commonality, of course, being car in that particular one. But what the hey, we'll listen to the Beatles now. Natasha Armstrong, Kathy Manso, Richard Fitzwilliams. Keep watching those movies. (laughs) 